I invite you to turn in your Bible tonight to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you remember the last time we were in uh, this letter, we were looking at verse 11 and 12. Um, and just noticing our identity, that we have been called out of darkness into the light so that we might show forth the excellencies of the one who called us and uh, that we're to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they can see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. And the question that rises from that is, well, what does that, what do, what does that life look like? What is an honorable, God-glorifying, noticeably uh, different life look like that would compel people to ask questions? And I think we assume it means a good moral life, and yet what Peter goes to is a submissive life. It looks like a life where we're submitting to authority and we're even willing to suffer injustice. And so it looks like humility more than, or before, it looks like morality. And so we're going to be looking then, uh, re- I'm going to start reading verse 13. We're going to be focusing specifically tonight on verses 18 through 25. And I wanted to do that because we have the Lord's Supper tonight. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and take verses 13 and following. But... Um, Let's give our attention tonight, uh, starting to verse 13, but we'll be looking at verses 18 um, through the end of the chapter. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor's supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. I just ask the Lord to bless his word tonight. Lord, we come as students tonight uh, because we trust that your spirit is the teacher. And this is his textbook. And this is, it is your desire to write these truths upon our hearts and minds so that we live by them. And so, Lord, we pray that you give us understanding hearts and minds. Uh, give us ears ready to hear. Give us, uh, Lord, the desire to follow after Jesus. And help us to see him tonight in his glory, in his beauty, and his love. We pray in his name. Amen. Every once in a while, I'll, um, I find that a particular sermon that I'm working on seems to be just meshing with the conversations I'm having through the week. And, and I have to say that this week was, that was particularly uh, the case. 
as uh, I was uh, having conversations with a variety of people and finding again and again going, uh, I was going back to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. Uh, because the things that we talk about here tonight are profoundly relevant things. This is not um, vague ideas. When we talk about suffering and, and even unjust suffering, those are some of the thorniest things that Christians face. Um, and so I just, just wanted to say as we, as we start here that this is an intensely relevant um, reality for, for some of us in a very, very real way tonight, but for all of us it's in, in one level or another, um, we will experience suffering that we will um, sense we didn't deserve. Whether uh, it's, it's a marriage issue, whether it's a parent-child issue, whether it's a work-related issue, maybe even in a health-related issue. Uh, maybe you, you got sick because someone else's um, a mistake or someone else's error. Maybe the doctor made a mistake and now you're going to suffer for that for the rest of your life. Whatever it might be, we, the reality is we live in a world where we will experience unjust suffering and Peter speaks to it tonight. It's a profoundly relevant text for where we live. Uh, I also want to, before we jump into the text itself, I think we do need to just recognize that that this text strikes us in a uniquely difficult way because of our social context. We are 21st century Americans. We have been born and raised with the deeply inbred conviction that uh, fighting for your rights is... It's just just the American way. Asserting your rights is important. Make sure that no one gets the best of you. Uh, We believe that that, um, suffering in general is is not a good idea. That if if suffering is happening, something's gone wrong and and, and it needs to be fixed. But unjust suffering, even more than, uh, offends us at some deep level, in part because of our culture. We need to realize that when Paul is writing, or when Peter is writing this, he's writing to a culture that accepts in some sense that unjust suffering is just the way the world works. He's writing specifically tonight in, uh, to servants who have unjust masters. Servants in Peter's day had no rights. Maybe they were servants because they were taken captive of war. Maybe they were servants because they uh, had gone into debt and had to sell themselves into servitude. It isn't the same sort of slavery as we experience here in America. But it, it was similar in the sense that you, you had almost no rights whatsoever. Now, that puts us, in some sense, there's a little bit of a tension between their position and ours. We do have rights as American citizens. Uh, we, we have the right to appeal to the laws of the land. When uh, Paul was unjustly being beaten as a Roman citizen, he raised the issue. And it's not inappropriate for us to, to, uh, to seek that our rights be respected. But what we're going to see tonight is that that's not, that's not the ultimate deal. Our rights have some significance, but, but not ultimate significance. And, and there are experiences that, we're, that we will have uh, in our life where there is real suffering. It is not just, and God calls us to bear it. And the question that we have before us is, how in the world do you do that? Why would you do that? What does that look like? And so Peter is writing to, uh, 
to servants and to the Christians of that day and our day as well. He's writing to people who are suffering injustice. They are, many of them have been persecuted already. They've been displaced from their homes by the emperor Claudius. Uh, They have lost their jobs. Many have lost their families. They're subject to ridicule and scorn and abuse. In verse 18, he's specifically addressing servants who are serving under unjust masters, masters who maybe beat them for no no reason or just mistreat them in some way, and they have no recourse. But what we need to see is that the way that Peter talks about this, he says this is a gracious thing. That is not what we would expect to hear. It's not what we would say. We would say it's a travesty. We would say it's a tragedy. It's something that needs to be fixed. But that is not how Peter addresses it. He says it twice, verse 19 and 20. This is a gracious thing. It's one word in the Greek, charis, means grace or gift. Now we just got to let our minds wrap around that. How could unjust suffering be grace and gift from God? This is a radical, radical concept. It does not strike us naturally at all. The, the idea of suffering and gift going together, it, it doesn't feel like they should go together. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to us that unjust suffering and God's gift are arm in arm. So how can that be true? And then how could we become people who dare to live like that? People who are um, willing to experience unjust suffering not as a travesty but as a calling. Not as a tragedy, but a gift from God. How do you actually do that? Because we could just mouth the words tonight. We could just say the platitudes. I could could say the right things, and you could nod at the right times. And we actually leave here sort of with a collective, yeah, right. That's not possible. Not in my life, not in my world, not in my experience. We could just blow the whole thing off as pious platitudes that doesn't take reality into account. Peter means for this to be taken to, into account, for this to actually mold us. And I just want us to see again as we look at this text how Peter looks at the Christian life in the context of Jesus. How are we going to do this? Well, we have to see our life, we have to see our suffering in the context of our Savior. And so the three things we're going to look at tonight first is Christ our pattern, then Christ our power, and then finally Christ our peace. Our pattern, Christ our pattern, Christ our power, Christ our peace. Let's look first at then Christ our pattern. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gift, a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. The first thing we just need to see is that unjust suffering is a calling. Again, that's a big pill to swallow. It's one of the hardest things for a normal person to do. It's hard enough to suffer. Nobody likes to suffer. Nobody signs up for suffering. But unjust suffering is much worse. Boys and girls, uh, I would assume that none of you enjoy spankings, right? Nobody enjoys spankings. But you sort of know if you have it coming to you that that's how the system works. You paint on the walls or, or uh, with crayons or whatever, and uh, you, you uh, disrespect your mom or your dad in a particular way. And it's no fun, but there's a certain justice to it. That is even, I don't know, strangely satisfying. There's order in the world. I paint on the walls, I get a spanking. That's how it works. 
unjust suffering is completely different. What if you didn't paint on the wall? What if it was your sister that painted on the wall? And you got the spanking. And you didn't do anything wrong. Now we're talking a whole different ballgame. Right? It, that's profoundly difficult. There's nothing satisfying. In fact, that's, that's almost torturous. And big people have the same thing. Uh, when you get blamed for something that goes wrong at work, and it absolutely was not your fault. You did not make the decision. You didn't do what you're accused of doing. And maybe you got penalized. Maybe you were even fired. And it wasn't your fault. The suffering of being laid off or fired or even blamed for something, is that's something you could handle if it were true. But it's not true. It's not true at all. And people suffer in all sorts of ways. Unjustly. They didn't, they didn't do anything. You see, suffering upsets our comfort, our security in some sense, but injustice is going to eat at your soul. It affects your personhood. You feel like you're being attacked inside somehow. To just sit there and to take it and to say nothing and do nothing and just receive it feels like dying. Exactly. Just like Jesus. That's what Peter says. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. You see, Peter believes that God has called us to suffer, and he's even called us to unjust suffering. Uh, he's talked about God's call several times already. He's going in this, in this chapter, in this, uh, this little letter. Uh, we've been called out of darkness into the light of God's gospel. We love the idea of God's call. It's God's sovereign intent towards us. Chapter 5, 10, he'll say we've been called to his eternal glory. Praise God for that. The, the call of God is that it's rooted in his sovereign goodwill, his sovereign pleasure. But we need to understand that the exact same word, uh, when, Paul is speaking, when Peter is speaking about the call of God into eternal, eternal glory, it's the same word we have here. And so that means that the, the same sovereign intent is at work here. That God knows our circumstances, and he intends sovereignly that we would suffer and at times suffer unjustly, that we hurt deeply because people are doing things to us and it, we are not at fault. We're in, we're in the right as best we know. To this you've been called. And Peter then gives us the, the paradigm, the example. In order to make it perfectly clear what he's talking about, what the, the nature of the unjustness and, and, the, and what it means that Christ is our example, he uses a word here, hupogramos, which means literally to overwrite. Uh, the idea uh, uh, is when you remember, if you remember being a little child and learning your letters, I remember uh, sitting in school and they had the, these, these uh, notebooks and uh, you learned your letters, how to write your letters because they would, there would be dotted lines, right, in the shape of an A and then a dotted line in a B. And, and all you had to do was follow the dotted lines. Nobody was looking for creativity. You didn't have to um, do anything except just follow the line. And then you go to the next letter. You follow that. And that's how you learn your letters. Uh, maybe you remember taking a tracing paper and putting over a, a picture, maybe in a coloring book. And you trace the lines of the coloring book. So you, you make your own picture. That's exactly the idea here. 
That Jesus is the pattern that's laid down and our life is laid over top of that and we're to trace the lines of our life according to the lines of his. He's the prototype, the paradigm. We're to follow in his steps, not vaguely sort of meander according to his general direction, but to walk in his steps one after the other. And in order that we feel the real weight of that, Peter then reminds us of how profoundly unjust the suffering of Jesus actually was. Notice the injustice. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You see, we define unjust suffering as suffering that we experience undeservedly. We didn't do anything that deserves it. We didn't merit the suffering. We didn't do anything wrong in that sense. Now, the truth is, of course, that we, none of us can say that ultimately. We've all done wrong. We're all children of Adam. And that there's a, there's a, a justness when we suffer. And, and we can't say ultimately, ultimately that it's undeserved. Jesus could say that. He never sinned, ever. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And Peter, of course, is referencing Isaiah chapter 53. And to say that there's no deceit in his mouth, well, James says, if a man does not sin with his mouth, with his tongue, that's a perfect man. Because out of the heart, the mouth will speak. And if, he, if, his heart, if his mouth never speaks any sin, that means his heart is absolutely pure. He's a, he's a perfect man. Jesus never sinned. That means that every bit of suffering that Jesus experienced was, in that sense, unjust. He didn't deserve it. Do you realize that I have a cold? I don't like colds. Not a bad cold, but it's just, it's just a nuisance. But I cannot say I didn't deserve a cold. Jesus could. He didn't deserve a cold. Every pain, every slight, every disappointment, every sorrow for Jesus was unjust. There was absolutely nothing about him that deserved it, that called for it. He was not a child of Adam. And he was not a participant in Adam's sin in any way. And yet he suffered, and he suffered horribly. I think Peter has in mind primarily the cross here. Let me just read you again some of the texts that speak about the suffering of Christ. I'll read from Luke and John and Mark. Luke 23, 10. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, and when they brought him on trial, they're vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. It's the Herod we talked about this morning, this, this vile, vindictive man. He, they're, they're scorning and mocking Jesus. John 19, 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. You know what a flogging is? It's when they take the cat of tails with, the, with the, the little bits of stone or steel embedded in the leather, and they whip you 39 times, which was allowed before trial. You could, you could go to 40 if there was trial or more, but without a trial, you were allowed to, to go up to 40, not over. And so it'd be 39 lashes on his back, completely laying open his back. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Mark 15, and in the third hour they crucified him. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would who destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. 
and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. That's what happened to Jesus. Beaten, mocked, scorned, crucified, nails pounded through his hands and his feet, and he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's the injustice. So how did he respond? Well, Peter tells us. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Isaiah the prophet marveled at the, the, the suffering servant back in, in Isaiah chapter 53 and, and how he responded to the suffering. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And you see, the question is, why didn't he say anything? Why didn't he protest? The silence of Christ screams for an answer. Why didn't he say anything to, to protect himself, to, to assert the injustice of this? Well, there's two answers given to that question in our text. The first is found here, that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So as people are mocking him, as they're scorning him, as they're beating him with their fists, as they're pounding the crown of thorns down onto his head, as they're laying open his back with the flogging, Jesus doesn't say anything, you see, not because of the reason his enemies would have assumed. You see, they... They believed that Jesus was silent because he was beaten. That Jesus was silent because he was resigned to his fate. That he was simply recognized that he was in the face of, of greater power than he had. And so um, it was just weakness on his part. But it wasn't weakness, was it? It was, it was the mighty, beautiful strength of faith in his Father. Faith in God. He knew the crimes being committed against him were not going to be answered and made right in this world, and that was okay. It didn't need to be made right right now. He entrusted himself. He continued this, this ongoing moment by moment, minute by minute, every time the stripes came across his back, to entrusting himself to his Father, to his Father in heaven who would judge justly. He didn't have to take vengeance. He didn't have to, to, to act. He didn't have to protect. He could trust. He could trust. And that's the example. He said, that's the pattern. That's the Jesus that we're called to follow. Now, Peter is not a moralist. You might, um, you might hear this, and, 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 and what you might hear is Peter saying, now listen, Jesus suffered uh, at the hands of bad people and he didn't say anything and he just trusted the Lord and you're going to suffer at the hands of bad people and so you don't say anything and you just trust the Lord too. Right? That's what he did. That's what you're supposed to do. Now that's true, but that's only part of the truth. You see, that's just moralism. It's true, Jesus is the example, and we are to follow him, but, but there, there's no power to do that. I, I can't just send you out of here tonight saying, now go and do likewise. You don't have that power. I don't have that power. And that's not how Peter deals with it, you see. 
Jesus is the example. This is how we're to live. But how do you do that? Seriously. When, it's, when you're in the middle of it. And your heart's being ripped apart because of the injustice that you're experiencing. How do you actually do this? Where's the power to do this? And that's what Peter moves to. The power is found in two little words in the middle of verse 21. To this you've been called because Christ also suffered. And here's the two words for you. He suffered for you. You see, Jesus didn't die and suffer just as an example. He suffered as a substitute. The suffering of Christ presents a baffling problem. Here is a sinless man. By the word of the, of the scriptures, by the word of Pilate himself, I find no fault in him. So why is he beaten? Why is he so hated? Why is he scorned? Why is he crucified? Justice, you see, demands an answer. And many will say, well, you know, there's no reason. He was just a victim. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He got in front of the wrong people. Uh, the, the, the forces of the Jewish leadership and Roman political power was just too great for him to overcome. It, there's no reason for it. It just happened. He was a victim. That's a lie. That's a lie. Jesus said to Peter, when Peter, remember, whips out his sword to take care of business and to protect the Lord of Lords, Jesus said, don't you know that I could call 10,000 angels right now? I don't need your sword. Put it away. He could have called all the hosts of heaven. And they would have immediately, fully set him free. He's not a victim. So if he had no sin... And if he had all power, then why, why, why this? Why did he give himself over to this? Why submit to such a grotesque beating? Why submit to such wicked scorn? Why let these, these, these vicious, vile people win? Why suffer the death of a damned man when he's not? He's an innocent man on the cross. Why is the all-powerful, sinless Son of God doing this? Why is He there? There has to be a reason. And Peter says there is a reason. He was there for you. He's not there just as a substitute. He's there as your substitute. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. He's there bearing your guilt, your sin, your shame, your penalty, your death, the deceit of your mouth. It's all laid on him. That's why he's there. And that's why he doesn't speak. That's the second reason. The first is, you see, he's entrusting himself to the Father. The second is, he's giving himself for you. For you. For your sin. Peter points that out so specifically. He died bearing our sin in his body there on that tree. He is the sacrificial lamb. You see the innocent, spotless sacrificial lamb. In the Old Testament, you read about the scapegoat, a, 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 a goat who would be brought in and, and the sins of Israel would be placed on, on uh, that goat and he would be, be driven then out into the, into the wilderness to die alone. And, and carrying the sins of the people. He was their substitute. Well, of course, a goat can't take away sin, but Jesus can. Which is why Peter says, by his wounds you have been healed. Again, Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And that healing has a dual nature. 
so that we might die to sin and that we might live to righteousness, that we might die to the penalty of sin. We might die to the power of sin. We might die to the pollution of sin. And ultimately, we will die to the presence of sin. It won't be with us anymore in any sense. We've died to all that so that death no longer has has a claim on us because our sin has been pardoned. There's no more judgment, no more condemnation. There's no more power in sin. We've died to it. It's not our Lord anymore. It's not our master. But also that we might live to righteousness. It's not just a negative thing that's happened in that that we've been justified, sins forgiven, made uh, declared righteous. It's also this healing is, is about living to righteousness, that the power of Jesus Christ actually comes into you and you become a new creature, a new creation, and you now have the power to suffer injustice in freedom live as free people and part of the freedom you see is the freedom to suffer injustice with our minds set on God it's the freedom to live in grace you see the 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 power of this is is knowing when you're in an experience of injustice knowing that that you the guilty one were freely pardoned For all your injustices against God, all your sins against God, and now you are set free to pardon others as they sin against you. The gospel, you see, weighs on you, so so it, it just becomes clear to you that how could you, having been forgiven so much, how could you refuse to forgive someone else for what they're doing? That you just, you don't have it in you to hold on to their sins, their, their injustices, as real as they are, and they are real. But in light of the gospel, in light of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, in light of the injustice that he suffered for you and for me, we simply don't have what it takes anymore to hold on to the injustice, to demand that it be set right. Well, there's an even greater or another truth that Peter points out, and we'll wrap with this, but you see, there's a fear about living like that. Well, what if you really would, would step into that? What will happen to you if you embrace that kind of life? If you allow people to continue doing their, their unjust things, their hurtful things, if you, if you just accept that, how will you be safe? How will it be okay? Who's going to protect you? Well, Peter addresses that as he points us to Christ our peace. Verse 25, you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and oversee of your souls. You see, friends, the reason that we fight so hard for our rights, and we do this, husbands do it, and wives do it, and children do it, and parents do it, employees and employers do it, and friends do it, that there's a principle at stake. And this hurts, and you're wrong, and you must not, and you cannot, and I will assert myself with my anger, I will assert myself with my threats. I will assert myself by withdrawing from the relationship. I will assert myself in rebellion. I will do whatever it takes to get you to pay attention, for you to straighten up, for you to make this right. It's wicked. It's wrong. doesn't serve God's purposes, but it makes absolute sense if you are all alone in the world. You see, if you don't have anyone to protect you, then it makes perfect sense. It's terrifying to be alone. And if you don't protect yourself, no one will protect you. And Peter says that's how we used to be. 
We once were strained like sheep. And there again, you have the echoes of Isaiah 53. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And it's looked a, a thousand different ways. Some people strayed into immoral um, perversion. Others strayed into moral pride. Both going their own way. Both equally lost. Some people got into drugs. Other people got into reputation and success at work. Both strained. Some people ran with the wrong crowd. Other people ran with the self-righteous crowd. Both without God in the world. But now. It's a wonderful gospel word. But now, you see, if, if you've come to Christ, your now isn't determined or defined by your past. Now you belong to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Someone, a divine someone, has taken charge of your care. Jesus has taken responsibility for your soul and your body, for your safety, for your ultimate good in this life and the, and the life to come. You have a divine guardian. You have a rock in which to hide. You have that sheltering hand who invites you to come and abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That's what you have in Jesus Christ. All power and authority belongs to him and he exercises that power and that authority for you. That doesn't mean that you are not going to suffer. It doesn't even mean you're not going to suffer injustice. Remember, to this you've been called. But what it does mean is that you will not suffer harm. Not ultimate harm. Not true harm. You have, you see, the promise that the Lord is your shepherd. You shall not be in want. And he will make you lie down in green pastures. He will lead you beside still waters. He will restore your soul. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you do not need to fear evil because he is with you. His rod and his staff will comfort you. I received an email this week from someone who's in a, a experience, has been in, in various times in her life, but I had shared this a sermon with this person and I just asked her permission to read to you this one paragraph. She said, when I was a teen, I realized the pain and oppression that was living in an abusive home subject to physical violence and parents who abused substances and made choices that hurt their children. I remember thinking that I was waiting God to deliver me from all the pain. I had no rights or ability to change my circumstances. I was just a dependent child. I believed that happiness meant God taking me out of my life. Finally, one day I realized that being a Christian may not change my circumstances, that I may not get out. What did that mean? The night my mother tried to stab herself in the chest and her boyfriend attempted to hang himself, we were driven away from our home with a stepfather who verbalized anger and disappointment in me for calling the police to help my mother because it meant there may be consequences for us. We drove off not knowing if she would be alive because she refused medical treatment and the police only asked that we be taken out of the home overnight. I remember my heart being broken and the despair I feared as my mother may be dead and the disdain from the step-parent who was telling me it was my fault. Then suddenly I remembered a song, Yahweh, I know you are near, standing always at my side. You guard me from the foe and you lead me in ways everlasting. Then I felt a strong peace come over me and whether I pictured it or it was a vision, I felt the presence of an angel wrapping its wings around me. No matter the outcome of my mother's fate, God's love and comfort were still with me. I realized that true peace wasn't in escape from my life, but in God's love and comfort, even when I was placed in difficult circumstances. 
this revelation was very important in my walk with Christ. It's exactly right. The circumstances you see might not change. And salvation and deliverance might not mean being taken out of the circumstances. But what it absolutely does mean is that Jesus Christ is with you in the circumstances and that he promises to be sufficient. He promises to be a shepherd. He promises to be a guardian for your soul. And he never breaks his promise. The kids last night, the young people sang as they closed their program from the depths of woe. This is from Psalm 130, and I'd like to wrap up with a few verses from that. Therefore, my trust is in the Lord and not in mine own merit. On him my soul shall rest. His word upholds my fainting spirit. His promised mercy is my fort, my comfort, and my sweet support. I wait for it with patience. Though great our sins and sore our woes, his grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows. Our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd, good and true is he, who will at last his Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. That's the promise. And he will keep it. Let's trust him. Amen. God in heaven, you know the hearts of your people tonight and you know the ones who are they're hurting because of suffering and unjust suffering. And yet, Jesus, we thank you that you've called us to live in this world with peace, with patience. You've called us to endure unjust suffering as a, a way of magnifying your glory. For this will surely raise questions in a world convinced that life is found in asserting our rights and avoiding suffering at all costs. Father, I thank you that you know what you're doing and I thank you that you know your people and I thank you that you've given us Jesus to be the context for our life so that we're free to suffer even injustice and free to do it with joy, with peace, to praise you through the tears, and to know that we have a Savior, a shepherd, a guardian, that we're safe, even though the way might be hard. Lord, I thank you that you invite us now tonight to come to your table, that you might testify to us with bread and with wine, your promise to us, to be a God to us, to be our shepherd forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask the elders to come.